Uh, Let's pray, and we'll get to studying. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the rain. Thank you that uh, it nourishes the ground, and it is a gift from your hand. We praise you for it. Uh, I pray that you'll help us as we study your word today, as we uh, continue to wrestle with some difficult concepts, uh, that you guide and direct, and may this be edifying to us and help us as we continue to desire to Proclaim the truthfulness of who you are and your word to those around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, apologetics. Um, I'm going to skip forward a little bit here. Uh, Worldview. This is what we've been talking about a little bit uh, last several weeks and then getting into some specific arguments. Uh, We talked about questions that we can ask that can help uncover a worldview. Who are we? Where did the universe come from, etc.? We can ask people these questions to hear about what they think, and a lot of people are very happy to share what they believe about these things. Now, you might be prepared to hear some strange things and, you know, off-the-wall type stuff, but people are very happy to share what they believe because everybody believes something about these things, even if they can't articulate it super well. Uh, they believe something about these things. So you can ask these questions, and from there you can begin to probe in and say, well, hey, you know... This kind of contradicts with that. Uh, this doesn't line up with this. How do you account for X, Y, and Z? And this is where our little triangle is helpful. The different elements of a worldview. What is our ultimate authority? How do we know things? What's our understanding of reality? And how all of that affects our ethical understanding of how we make decisions in everyday life. A unbiblical worldview is not going to be able to have a coherent worldview where all these things are consistent with each other. There will be some breakdown somewhere along the line. So that's where this chart comes into play that I think is very helpful. Uh, We have our worldview, and we have opportunities offensively and defensively to proclaim the gospel. And you'll see I I wrote down a couple of uh, Scripture references on the ones I handed out to you. Uh, One, that the 2 Corinthians 10 passage that I've referenced time and time again about uh, we destroy arguments, we bring every thought captive to Christ that we, uh, you know, uh, the the phrase is, um, oh, it's right on the tip of my tongue. Uh, Every lofty opinion that raises itself against the knowledge of God, right? We're we're addressing those arguments. That's offensive uh, apologetics. And then there's the defensive. We're giving a reason for the hope that's within us. We're answering questions. We're uh, responding to different truth claims that come against us, and we respond with the with with truth from God's word. And so there's both a the positive and the negative, the offensive, the defensive aspects in the midst of that. So that's a it's a handy chart. Again, I was developed by uh, Jeremy Howard, uh, so it's a good thing to keep handy. And then this is kind of where we're at right now: is working through a defensive apologetics, answering truth claims about different things that people bring against us. But even as we go through this, I'm going to be hoping to kind of bring this down. Okay, there's different arguments that we can examine. And sometimes it's helpful, oh, I'm just going to memorize this argument and then I'm just going to use it, memorize and deploy type of thing. And that can be helpful. But there are other ways where we can understand the logic and the flow, but then rephrase it in kind of more everyday parlance, just everyday conversation kind of language. And I want to help us to try to think through that as well. So last time we were together, we started looking through Um, different arguments for the existence of God, answering the claim, there is no God, responding to that. And so that's where we're at right now. Uh, We talked about how biblically there's no such thing as atheists, right? Uh, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. 
uh, Romans 1, that the things about God have been clearly revealed, like they're, they're clearly there in creation, but mankind is suppressing and trying to replace the truth. But it, the knowledge of God is innate with all mankind. But there are different logical ways that we can even think about things and say, you know what? It's so illogical to believe in atheism, like it, it really, really is. And there's different things that can help us see that and articulate it in a way that um, will challenge the atheistic presuppositions of individuals that we come across. So we talked about the cosmological argument, right? Uh, there's the origin of the universe, the question of that, is it self-created, is it eternal? Uh, there's this naturalistic understanding that's um, impersonal force, whether that's energy, matter, atoms, space, etc., plus time, plus chance equals creation, right? Well, we're still left with questions. Where did that impersonal force come from? Where, where does all this time come from? Talked about the uh, probability that the odds that this could happen, that we could just evolve and everything arrive like this. It's one to, you know, 10 to the 40,000th power. Like, that's insane mathematical odds. Uh, we talked about, I showed you that video, which is called the, the Kalam cosmological argument. It's a variation of the cosmological argument. Premise one, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Premise two, the universe began to exist. Conclusion, the universe has a cause. And then I tacked on the end there, and his name is God. <laughs> this is who it is. His name is Yahweh. Uh, this is the one who has created all things. He is the uncaused cause. And it can be a helpful way to help people think through the existence of, or just account for the existence of matter and reality. We touched on this a little bit last time, the teleological argument. We didn't spend a whole lot of time on it just because of time uh, constraints. It's similar to the cosmological argument, uh, but it looks kind of more down rather than up. So the cosmological argument kind of looks upward and outward and looks at everything on a massive scale. Well, the teleological argument kind of begins to look down and see, you know, everything is really seems to be designed in particular ways. So we look at eyes and we look at other organs and we see how the complexity of the human eye. You know, Phil's about to have this eye surgery and the eye is just such an incredible thing. The eye is the fastest healing organism in your body. Every time you blink and the, that your, 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 uh, that salt water from your tears coats your eye. It, it has healing properties to it. Like it just, it is the fastest healing organism in your body. It's, it's really remarkable. But then there's even the smallest single cell, organ, single cell organisms. I'm stumbling over my words there. They're incredibly complex. And so we have pictures like this. That image on the right, that is a, or the left rather, or what, your right, my left, you know. The green and blue thing, yeah. <laughs> well, no, the, well, the eyeball, that over there is a single cell organism. One cell. And it has a motor inside of it. And that tail spins and it propels itself through the water. Like, just like you think of like a motorboat. And the, and the engine that sits in there and the little propeller that spills, spins. That's what this thing does. It's a single cell organism that does that. Well, how is that possible? How does that evolve? Like, it, it doesn't. It is designed in a particular way. It has come together in a particular way that uh, is evidence of a designer. That's a teleological argument that argues from the... Yeah, basically. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, one big word to another, yep. Right. It just wouldn't work. So the word, exactly. The word, the, the reason they call this uh, the teleological argument, that, that, that prefix tele is uh, from the Greek word telos, which speaks to the end or the purpose of something. So teleological is really talking about the design. It's designed for a purpose. It's designed for a reason. It's not just some random happenstance. The eye was designed for seeing, like it was designed that way, it was intricately made for this purpose. It has its end in sight, it has its telos in sight, it's the teleological argument, so that's where, that's where that word comes from. Um, and yeah, like it just, it, it cannot, it, it doesn't logically make sense to say that this evolved this way. Now. There are strengths and weaknesses to this argument. I do think it demonstrates the necessity of God, and this is not just like a God of the gaps kind of argument where it sometimes gets thrown around like, oh, you know, you just, there's this information you can't explain, and so you're just trying to fill in those empty spots with God. You're trying to fill in the gaps with God. That's a God of the gaps argument that atheists like to throw around, and I don't think that's a valid argument because um, there's more to it than that. I mean, there's just, there's just more to it. So we do see the necessity of God. However, it can't really get us down to the God of the Bible. Like there's nothing inherent in the argument itself that says this has to be the Trinitarian God of the Scriptures. Yes. You can begin to use other arguments in conjunction with it to lead to the biblical God, but, the, but there's limitations with the argument just as it stands by itself, right? So it gets you so far, and it's, it, can, it can be helpful insofar as it gets you, but most people actually aren't atheists, and it's because of stuff like this. Like I had a conversation with one of my coworkers one time who he could basically say, he's like, we're driving along. And he's like, you know, I've got, I've got this cousin, he's an atheist, because we were talking about how I was, at that time, I was training to be a pastor. I wasn't a pastor yet. And uh, we were talking about that stuff. He's like, yeah, you know, he's like, you know, I got a cousin who says he's an atheist and stuff, but I just, 
I just don't understand how he can be an atheist. I mean, you just, and we're driving, we're driving through the, you know, the back hills of Kentucky, and it's just the rolling hills, and it's just beautiful trees all over the place. He's, I mean, just look at all this. It's just, it's so beautiful. And it's like, it just, this just couldn't just happen to be. Like, someone had to make all this. I was like, yes, that's exactly right. But now what are you going to do about that information? He was content to just say, well, no, yeah, God made it. And that's good enough for me. And just leave it at that. He didn't want to get into accountability. He didn't want to get into what my responsibility is in my relationship to that creator. He didn't want to go there. He was content to say, there's a big man upstairs, and that's good enough for me. Yeah. Yeah. That would be a really good way to, to segue that conversation. Yeah. I don't remember how I continued that conversation that day. I, I don't think I did a very good job, honestly. <laughs> but it was, I just, that, it just stuck out to me that he was very willing. He, he basically gave me the cosmological argument. Like, this stuff just couldn't just happen. Okay. As we think about the, um, okay, we have a logical argument. Like, okay, that's good. Is it always helpful to just recite logical arguments in everyday conversation with people? Hey, let me take you, let me take you through a syllogism. No. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. People are going to be illogical. Now, we, if you can press the issue and, and really kind of keep people focused, okay, yeah, sure, you can, you can walk through an argument with people. But most of the time, it's not really going to be that way. Now, so I want to kind of flip things around. So we're, we're talking about defensive arguments. You know, someone says and tries to make the truth claim, atheist, there is no God. Like, okay, now we've got some different arguments that we've got that we can say, well, I don't really think that that really holds because, I mean, you just look at such and such, et cetera. But most of the time, our everyday conversations aren't at that level. But we can begin to open up doors of opportunity for us by just making comments. Even that, This is where you're, you're creating your own evangelistic opportunities at this point. You know, sometimes we talk about, oh, Lord, I just, you know, I want to pray for opportunities for the gospel through this. And I think so often, sometimes the Lord just opens up those opportunities for us, and it's just a matter for us to walk through the door. But then there are some times where it's like, well, okay, if you actually want to have a gospel conversation with somebody, you're going to have to be the one to bring it up. You're going to have to create the opportunity yourself. My, what a beautiful sunrise that God has given us today. I have just commented on the beauty of creation, something that they'll agree with, like, oh, yeah, that's a beautiful sunrise for sure. But I have just made it a worship moment. Look what God has done. The heavens declare the glory of God, right? That's Psalm 19, verse 1. The firmament, the skies above show His handiwork, the firmament. Look at all those stars. God is so powerful. He's made all of these things. Look at this. It's, it's just incredible. Well, now there's an opportunity. Now that can go a whole bunch of different directions. If they take the bait. If they take the bait. And then they may not take the bait. And that's, 
but you've introduced it and you've you begin to express a biblical worldview. God is, and He has revealed Himself. You're beginning to build a biblical worldview. That's the cosmological argument. Comments about design of the world. Look how God designed this. So, you know, Phil's got his eyes, right? He's, he's so many opportunities that could be there. You know, I've got this eye issue, but wow, it's, it's amazing how complex and intricately designed the eye is. We take the eye for granted, don't we? I, I remember, <laughs> you, you, don't, you don't take the eye for granted? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I remember, I remember when I, was, when I first got glasses, and I was uh, riding in the car. The, the, it, was just, it was like the first week after I got glasses, and I, had, I was just looking, and I was just amazed at everything, like the sharpness of everything and, and really the beauty of everything that I was missing just because I had, I had poor eyesight. I was like 12 years old at that time. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a little bit like it was just like everything is just so sharp. I can see so far away. I can read that sign over there. It's like, wow. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You, 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 you get that leaf, right? And all the, you know, the blood vessels of the, of the leaf, so to speak, you know, where it's carrying all that stuff. So you, you look at it. We can make comments about that to people. You know, look at the beauty of this. Look at how intricately designed this is. This, this couldn't have just happened. Like God made that, and He did it for a purpose. This fulfills all those lines and those leaves. That is accomplishing something uniquely designed for that tree. Couldn't happen any other way. It was designed that way. And now we're beginning to assert the biblical worldview. And again, where that conversation goes, it can go a whole bunch of different directions. But there's ways that we can use these arguments without building a syllogism, but they're resting upon the logic of what's at play. Make sense? Okay. Again, this is, now we're about to go into one of these things where it's like, all right, let's let's get our thinking caps now. Let's put our thinking caps on. Because I'm about to go through what is probably the most complex argument for the existence of God. We're doing the ontological argument. (laughs) I am going to do my best, and it's probably going to be woefully inadequate to explain the ontological argument. Some people just have brains that this really clicks with. My brain's not naturally one of those brains, okay? Ontological, it has to do, uh, ontology is the nature of being. So, it's an ontological argument is an argument from the nature of being itself. Now, that's a complex idea just by itself, right? So, what are we talking about? The, the nature of being, the nature of the existence of something. So, well, I, got, I, have, I should have just hit the next button on the slide. Ontology is the study of being, the study of existence, the study of reality. So, our, uh, this relates to metaphysics to a degree. Um, but just the nature of who we are is a bit of ontology. 
the ontological argument is an argument about God's nature and God's being. So we could talk about ourselves and our own nature and our own being. Well, this is about God and His nature and His being. It's an argument centered around the nature of God's being. This is a philosophical argument. There's no, like, Scripture passages that it would, like, pull from. It's a logical argument. It appeals only to logic and philosophy and not to, like, I, I, I can't, so I can think of, like, the cosmological argument and the teleological argument, and we can say, like, okay, you know, there's some scriptural principles here, like the heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, the God's invisible attributes are clearly seen in the things that He has made. And so we're kind of appealing to those realities as we're building a cosmological and teleological argument. Ontological argument, the closest I could say is, in the beginning, God. There's your ontological argument. God just is. But it, this argument is a little bit, uh, it takes a little bit of a different direction even from that. And I'm just going to say at the outset, it's difficult to wrap our minds around this concept. But here's, here's the argument. First, God is that being which nothing a greater can be conceived. The greatest being that we can ever imagine, that's who God is. Yes. There's nothing, you, you can't even imagine something greater than God. You just can't. Because whatever you would imagine would then be God, right? Like whatever you think is greater than God, that is that's, that's who God would be. So, God is the being which nothing greater can be conceived. Nothing can be imagined. Nothing can be thought of, conjured up. Exactly. Yep. Right. Okay. Robin, you had your hand up? Yeah. Um, well, I was going back over a very long conversation, text conversation I've had with her from several people in the past. And it seems like all of these things were covered in that big shot from one to the next to the next to that. Yeah. Sure, yeah. He, he is still, uh, it, it's still, um, I would say it's a category error, and that's a fa fallacy all on its own if you want to throw big words back at him, but <laughs> um, where he's, he is still operating under the assumption that God is physical matter, but he's not. Right, and he's not. And... So, it's one of those things that, okay, you, it, you, know, you can have all the best arguments in the world and someone's not going to be convinced. Why? There's, there's sin and there's a rejection and there's suppressing and replacing. So, yeah. 
But I want to keep, um, if you want to even write down some of those things or, or text or forward a text to me at some point, we can, we can, we, I'll address, you know, we can address some of those specific arguments. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well. Yeah, and that's, well, write that down and give that to me too, just that opening statement, and then I'll, we'll, we'll yeah, well, just the, oh, I want to, you know, anyone who has to believe in something has to have evidence or whatever, because that is a, that's a specific argument that can be, can be easily countered, um, but I'm going to take us, continue work us through our ontological argument for now. God is the being which nothing greater can be conceived. That's the first premise. Like you said, the beginning definitions that we're defining God, and this is how, for the sake of this argument, we're defining who God is. Well, existing in reality is greater than existing only in the imagination. If you could imagine something, that thing that you're imagining existing in reality would be really a more significant existence than just in your imagination. Well, then now, now is the big, next big thing, right? That's whatever you can imagine that actually exists is greater than whatever you could imagine that doesn't exist. Well, if God is that being which nothing greater can be conceived, well, then the logical conclusion is the greatest being imaginable possesses the attribute of existence. Therefore, God exists. This is, um, again, this is a philosophical argument. Um, it's really interesting reading like so, different philosophers, even atheistic philosophers who have encountered this argument and have wrestled with it and tried to expose holes in it and such. And by the way, this argument is like, it's like 1,500 years old. Like, it's really, really old. <laughs> yeah, St. Alsom, yep, yep, that's who it is. And uh, so it's been around a very, very long time, and it's been dealt with by philosophers and stuff for a very, very long time. But uh, Bertrand Russell was uh, engaging with the argument one time. He was a very famous atheistic philosopher. And at one point, he came to the conclusion, by golly, the argument is sound. Like, and he couldn't believe that he was even uttering those words, that it's a sound argument. Now, other people are less convinced of it. And again, I think I said at the beginning, it takes, it takes a, a certain 
mindset, I guess, to, to, for it to, I don't know, to click this way, to think this way. I don't think in, ter- in these kinds of terminologies. And I think there are some weaknesses of the argument. Uh, I think those weaknesses have answers and such, but I'm not fully equipped to provide them. But it can be something that's a little bit hard to follow because we're talking about concepts and we're talking about, okay, you know, these, these things we think are the greatest thing that we can think of. Well, it's greater to exist in reality. I mean, we're, we're just talking about like hypothetical, very conceptual. And if your brain doesn't operate that way, it can be hard to, it can be hard to follow. And I don't find that this is an argument that is helpful for like my normal everyday conversations with people. <laughs> like, hey, uh, you know, yes, it is, it's an academic kind of argument, yeah. No, it's very abstract, yeah. Yeah. It is. Some people argue that this, this line of reasoning can be applied to things that don't actually exist. So let's just change the parameters of, a little bit. The scariest monster imaginable is the monster which nothing scarier can be conceived. Well, existing in reality is scarier than existing only in the imagination. Therefore, the scariest monster imaginable possesses the attribute of existence. <laughs> it's called human beings. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> so, so, like, there's different ways that we could, people could try to use this argument. Eh, I don't know. I'm... Yeah, I guess, yeah, it's just, uh, what's, what's scarier? Um, the flying spaghetti monster or a human, yeah, a human that can, um, you know, yeah, or someone who can even have the appearance of goodness and then could literally stab you in the back the next moment, like, yeah, that's scary. All right, I've got one more argument that I want to walk through real quick. I say real quick. Yeah, we'll see. I'm going to try. Ten minutes. we got ten minutes. We're going to try to do the, at least the, the simple version of it at least. The transcendental argument. This is an argument that basically starts with the premise, it's actually impossible for God to not exist. Uh, so let's say um, it is a little bit. It's impossible for God to not exist, so therefore he must exist. Like this is the impossibility of the contrary argument. What's your favorite argument for God? Well, it's, it's the impossibility of the contrary. It's impossible for God to not exist. Here's the, here's the argument. God is the necessary precondition for logic, morality, beauty, etc. Now, this is where things, this is, again, this is a little bit of another philosophical argument. It gets a little bit heady. We need our thinking caps, right? Necessary preconditions. We're talking about 
before we can even have a conversation about these things, there are certain presuppositions that we have that we share that exist at the base level that even allow us to even have this conversation. And God is that being. God is the necessary precondition for knowledge. This is often, this is actually pretty tightly connected to presuppositional apologetics, the transcendental argument for God, or sometimes abbreviated as TAG, transcendental argument for God, TAG, T-A-G. We presuppose certain things in order to engage in conversation. So, how do you know anything about anything, right? We talked about this, epistemology. Uh, how do you know what you know? Well, we all act like we know things, right? There's different philosophers and there's different people. There's, there's postmodern uh, ideas that are out there that really are increasingly casting doubt on our ability to know anything with certainty. Oh, how do you know we're not just like a brain in a jar and we're responding to electrical stimulus, zap, zap, zap on our brains, and we don't actually exist? We're in the matrix. Right? It's the matrix argument. How do we know? Well, how do you know outside of a biblical worldview? You don't know. There's, there's no grounding for that knowledge. And so the, the transcendental argument is saying, well, God is the necessary precondition for intelligibility. He's the necessary precondition for logic morality, etc. We all live and even feel intuitively that we do know things. Right? We don't act like everything's uncertain in the world. There are some things that are certainly uncertain. There's an oxymoron a little bit for you. Certainly uncertain. <laughs> but there are so many things that we act as if it is certain, right? We get in our car and we drive down the street and we act as if we're certain we're doing those things that when I turn the wheel, I'm going to turn the direction I, I'm wanting it to go. Now, sometimes something breaks and it doesn't go how you want it to go, but by and large, generally speaking, it works, right? And we act and we live as if we can know things and that there is reliable knowledge. The Transcendental Argument argues that God is the reason why that's even possible. The only way this can happen is if God truly exists. He made us in His image with the capability to know things, and He upholds us all in the world continuously through His Word, by the power of His will and His might. In such a universe, the possibility of knowledge is only possible, again, with the precondition of the existence of God. We all depend on things like logic and morality. Therefore, God exists. There's no getting around these things. You know, for, even, for, even for your son to try to use logical arguments and appeal to logical fallacies. Well, who says those are fallacies? Who gets to decide that? Who gets to decide what's moral, what's right? Laws of logic, morality, even the concepts of beauty, immaterial things, anything that's like immaterial. Mathematics, not beautiful, but they work. Why? Because God designed the world this way. Like God is the necessary precondition for this to work. Nothing else works outside of uh, all-knowing, all-powerful, transcendent. That's why it's the transcendental argument is because God transcends His creation and has ordered the world to operate according to these principles. But the, uh, a a immaterial concept such as beauty can only exist with an immaterial being who has created beauty. 
Otherwise, just the, even the concept of beauty doesn't make sense in a purely rationalistic, naturalistic worldview. Why is anything beautiful? Like, oh, just we evolved to like this. There's no, exactly, what's the value of it? Why are there art galleries? Why, why you know, when we hear music that's beautiful, why do we even use that language? Like, there's no value in it whatsoever. In a material, strictly materialistic universe, none of that makes sense. So therefore, God exists. I would argue that this one gets you closer because if, when we start talking about logic, morality, uh, preconditions of intelligibility, knowledge, being able to communicate, those presuppose a personal God because if we cannot have personal conversations and personal, we can't have relationship the concept of relationship must stem from a relational being. So God's not aloof. He's not, he's not uh, impersonal. He's personal. It assumes that he's a communicative God. He has revealed himself. He's made known something about himself. It assumes uh, there's a whole... He's good. Yes? Logic, morality. Rules out Allah. Allah, uh, Allah can, uh, in the Quran, Allah is even described as being deceptive, intentionally deceptive, yes. And so, and, and if you talk, I've had conversations with, uh, my conversations haven't usually gone that deep, but um, conversations with some Muslims who describe that God is not bound to our conceptions of morality. He is not bound by the laws in which he... And, he's, and he himself is not... Yeah, so... Yes. They're for us, they're not for him. Yes. Right. And that is, that's a key point on why I think the transcendental argument gets us closer to the God of the Bible. And really, once you start going down all the logical, the only God that is left as an option, so to speak, really is the Christian God. So that's I really do think it's, it's a better argument from that standpoint. Just, I, we're about out of time, so I just want to go through the last couple of slides here. Um, simplified, okay, we have, there's a transcendental argument, simplifying it a little bit. The existence of morality implies a moral lawgiver. We've heard those arguments, I think. Uh, the existence of immaterial laws of logic imply an immaterial being who created them. The concept of beauty doesn't make sense in a naturalistic worldview. We've covered all of that. It can get complicated and difficult to explain and understand. It is a philosophical argument, 
and a logical argument. So it can get heady, and a lot of people don't live in this space. On the pro side, it does rely on our presuppositions. It does rely upon, it, it, it kind of does start with that starting place of God exists. It's the, he's the necessary precondition. That's my fundamental presupposition on, our, on that chart there that I showed you. God is. He has revealed himself. And so that it makes sense that we have all these other things. It makes sense that we have knowledge and logic and morality because God exists. So I do think there's, there's value in it from that standpoint. Um, So yeah, this is, uh, I showed this slide the first day that we um, started th thinking through arguments for God. The Bible does assume God exists, existence, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created. And biblically, there are no true atheists. And there's different arguments that help us, that help us see, okay, yep, uh, this is rational for us to conclude that God exists. And more than that, that He has revealed Himself and that He is involved in His creation. Um, but at the end of the day, it really comes down to faith. And actually, I'm going to try to, I'm going to pull an audible here for a minute. And I'm going to show you a video. If I can find it. No. I'm calling an audible. That's a, that's a football term. Let's see. Okay. Maybe I'll save this for next week, actually. Because we're out of time. I'm going to save it for next week because we're out of time. And then I can get it better formatted and stuff. So those are some different arguments. Um... Again, at the end of the day, if, if people aren't going to acknowledge the necessity for faith in something, um, it, how, do we, how do we move the ball forward? And that's where this, um, this chart can be helpful in trying to see how to move the ball forward. With some individuals, um, they dig their heels in, you know. And I know we've all experienced, people I know, Robin, as you've described, your experience with your son and... Um, Yeah. Yeah, and that's and and you know you can send him. I really would like not only to look and see what better answers, but particularly the answers I did get. Sure. Well, and and. There's, there's certainly value in doing that. I think, that. I think it's important for all of us to realize, too, is that we are all imperfect vessels and um, imperfect communicators of God's truth, and we do the best that we can, and there does always desiring to be better, but always also trusting that God can use my imperfect answers in ways that I never would have expected, and trusting in that. You know, like, there are times where... Um, you know, there are times where I can get up and preach a sermon that I just think is just an absolute dud of a sermon. <laughs> like, I just like, 
that was not a good sermon. I didn't, I don't feel good about that. I don't like the way I presented it. I don't like, I, I just don't like the way I formulated it. And yet people can come up and say, oh, I just really appreciate that. That really spoke to me today, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, like, oh, I thought that was just useless sermon right there. And, but God uses it, right? And then I can have other days where I'm just like, oh, I just, I just nailed that sermon. That was, that was like our best sermon ever. And then like nobody will say a word. It's like, oh, well. It's not about me, right? It's not about me and my community. It's not about vindicating me. And that's the important point. I don't have to feel vindicated. This is about God. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there does come a point where we have to see that and, and leave it up to God at that point. It's just like, look, we've, like, I know it's hard. That is, that is so hard, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's close in prayer and um, ask God for soft hearts. Lord, thank you that we can have trust and confidence in your word and in your reality. And that even as we come before you in prayer, we're not just speaking words out into the ether. We're not just saying stuff that just goes no further than this room. But you hear, you understand, you listen. And we're so thankful that we can have faith and confidence that that is so. Lord, our hearts are heavy for individuals that we know and we love so dearly that are choosing to rebel against you and to suppress the truth that they have innately within themselves. I ask for, uh, for softness of hearts, Lord. I think particularly of Robin's son, uh, Lord, that you would bring him to the end of himself where he will come to understand and realize that uh, he needs you. He needs to repent and trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, he's got all of his arguments. And he thinks they're logical. He thinks they're so great. In reality, he's just trusting in fallen sinful humanity and the product that fallen sinful humanity can bring about. I pray that you open his eyes, give him eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand and believe that you are the one true God. We know that this has to be a work from you in your hand, and we pray that you would accomplish it. Give us all wisdom as we engage different individuals within our circles of influence, our spheres, Lord, our friends, family members, co-workers, neighbors, classmates, etc. Lord, just help us to have productive conversations for your honor and glory that we may see more individuals come to hear, believe, and know, follow after Jesus Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.